We made this. And welcome to You Have Been Watching, a podcast devoted to looking in depth at the fascinating curiosity that is the British television sitcom and comedy series. I'm your host, Tony Black, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Turnbull, to discuss one of the gold standard examples of the British sitcom, Forty Towers. So yeah, uh, this is our first episode, Robert. This is uh, this is going to be fun, isn't it? Hopefully people listen to our little intro that we did sort of setting the scene for the podcast, but yeah, we're going to go in deep in this pretty legendary show, aren't we? Well, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Like you say, hopefully people have kind of like heard what we, what we're going to do and how we're going to talk about it. And now they're here to listen to our, our insights on what is, uh, you know, generally regarded as one of, you know, one of the best, if not uh, the best uh, British sitcoms. Uh, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be really, it's going to be really, I love the show. So just to talk about this show and hopefully not gush about it, but hopefully say something a little bit insightful about it um, is going to be quite fun for me. Uh, no pressure then on <laughs> us <as Yeah>. podcasters. <laughs> we've got, we've got to not just talk at you guys. We've got to be insightful. Yes, so, we, know, we have to this... be insightful and educational. That's, yeah. you know. This is our challenge. Although, you know, if, if you're if you're here for that, just stop now. It's like, no, I'm joking. Yeah, we're, um, just gonna, so... we're just going to talk about our favourite bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like the bit where he, yeah, okay. Uh, we're not going to do that. So, yeah, so Forty Towers aired across two seasons in 1975. Oh, so I should say series, really, because seasons is much more of an American thing. Yes, yeah. Um, so across two series in 1975 and 1979, written by and starring John Cleese and Connie Booth, and revolving around the titular Torquay Hotel and the long-suffering manager Basil Fawlty, who in his rages against everything from the working class to the sexually liberated to inspectors and council officials and beyond, exposes his own neuroses and prejudices. There's enough material there for an entire conference, says a psychiatrist (laughs) in one episode. Boy, is he right. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about Basil and the show itself. <laughs> so, um, Robert, I suppose we've sort of we sort of touched on this a minute ago, but um, general thoughts then before we start on Forty Towers. I mean, are we fans? Is it is it overrated? Is it in the middle? Where do you sit on this on this show? Well, I I'm a big fan. So, like from a purely personal point of view, I'm I'm a I'm a massive fan of this show. It wasn't. I don't think it was my first introduction. To kind of John Cleese and his world I think I'd already um I'd already seen a few other things by the time I watched Faulty Towers I mean I I was probably like sort of you know 
seven, eight years old, maybe, when I first watched it. And I think I'd already seen a few things. I'd seen him in Time Bandits, and I think I'd watched some some Monty Python by then. So I kind of I kind of knew of him. But I do think for a lot of people, this might be their first experience because it is kind of it's actually quite kid friendly in a lot of ways. But now I'm a big fan. I don't think it's overrated or maybe it's one of those shows which and we'll touch on this in a bit more detail, I'm sure, as we go along. Maybe it's one of those shows which appears to be overrated. But as soon as you do look at it with a bit more depth, you realise that actually it's it, it deserves everything which is which is said about it. I think Faulty Towers is one of those rare examples of a show that has never really had that moment of either being critically reappreciated where people say, oh, it's not as good as it was, or it's better than you thought. Because it's always just remained, I think, in the same place in that certainly after it first aired, because I think when it first aired, right, right at the very beginning, it took some people a little bit of time to really it get did, what yeah. this was. Yeah, it um, took a while. Because they were so used to to Python and they were so used to John Cleese doing sketch comedy and doing things like Python or then the or before that the Frost Report and all these kind of things that they were they were they were they didn't quite know what this was you know uh, uh, him playing a, 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 a hotel a manager in a provincial tour I think they thought it was going to be this soft safe quite, quite twee seventies sitcom you know and then. Very quickly, <laughs> throughout that, even yeah. that first episode, <laughs> they were like, the, "Okay, this is this is way more than that." But I think once then it started to, it, you know, it built that that momentum, and then certainly by the second series, which was like four years later, which is quite a gap considering that time period. You know, they were churning yeah, it really out comedies. Is, yeah, you know, they were doing loads of episodes of comedies and churning them out really fast. Whereas, yeah, Cleese chooses to do six and then waits four years. So by 1979, it's it's a bigger deal, and then it, but it's remained, I think, hasn't it? It's remained critically adored by the majority for the last 40 plus years. I think you've, I mean, that's that's exactly you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's never fallen out of favour, really. So it's never had that that reappraisal of being either better or worse. It has just kind of endured. I find it to be. I, I well, I, I've loved it ever since I was a kid, and. I still do, you know. I uh, for this podcast, I did a rewatch, and I don't. I wouldn't say it's been vast amount of time since I watched them since, because every now and then I'll throw one on, yeah, just I'm the same. for the yeah. fun of it. And and you know, we talked about this before we started recording. I have an encyclopedic knowledge of it in my head in terms of the <laughs> scripts. Like I, I just know what they're going to say. I have I have it on loop, you know, like the uh, the episode with uh, communication problems with Mrs. Richards, the the deaf oh, woman. Fantastic. And he says. He says, what do you expect to see? Sydney Opera House, the hanging gardens of Babylon. And, all these kind of and as he's saying it, I'm just saying it alongside it. It's one of those shows. So yeah, I've, I love it. I think it's, I think it's a masterpiece. And I think it's, it's a, a great example of a, of a show that there are maybe episodes that are slightly better than others, but there is not one episode that I would say isn't truly fantastic in terms of the hit rate of jokes. That is so rare. Uh, you know, there are so few comedy series, even the greatest comedy series, the ones that we would put up there have episodes where you don't get that. Whereas I'm not sure Faulty Towers has a, a, a stinker really throughout all 12. No, not at all. There's, I don't think there's, there's, there's no episode that you skip over. And I, while I think a lot of people have favorites and obviously there's, there's, there's the obvious one that people kind of like think of as the best. 
I, I don't think there I don't think there is. I don't think there is a sort of a a standout, you know, this is the absolute best and this is the absolute worst. I think it's a, a very, very small sliding curve of uh, you know, slightly better than this one. And but they're all, you know, they're all great episodes. They're all so yeah. tight. And I, I think I think this was probably my first exposure to Cleese because I've ne- I'll be honest, I haven't actually watched all of the Python TV series even now. That's still on my list to do. Um, I did watch some of them when they were on Netflix. I think they might still be on Netflix. I'm not sure, but they they all came on Netflix a few years ago, and I did watch some of them. And I I'm not. I'll be honest, Robert. I'm not the biggest surrealism guy. Like when you yeah. go full on surrealism, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, it, I, it's hit and miss for me, like in the, any yeah. kind of surrealist thing. So I haven't, I've, I love, I really like the Monty Python movies, particularly Holy Grail. And I've oh, yeah. watched that many times over, but I think Faulty Towers was probably, and I, I discovered a fish called Wonder very young as well. Actually. Oh yes. and I, yeah. That again is one of Cleese's greatest things he's ever done, but yeah, I think Forty Towers was the first show for me, the first time I ever really saw him. And and I don't know about you, watching it young as well, some of the jokes that I get now completely went over my head when I was younger. Oh, completely. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's kind of the, the, the joy, isn't it, with, with shows like this, especially shows that have been around from before you were born, that you kind of, you watch them as a kid and you enjoy certain jokes on certain levels and it's fantastic and then you watch it again as an adult and it's like a whole new show because all of a sudden there are the references that you didn't get and you get to sort of like re-enjoy it i think what you're saying it's like not to sort of like rag too much on on python and i i love monty python but i absolutely would would personally say that the films are better because they have a discipline to them and i think that's actually what comes of Faulty Towers is like, um, although obviously the surrealism is out the window, although when you, you when you sort of squint at it, you can see there is a, a surrealism to it, just a, a far more sort of grounded version. And I, I think Faulty Towers really proves that John Cleese actually, when he is disciplined, he, he probably produces his best work. Yeah, I think so. And, I, I you know, I, I felt that, again, to mention A Fish Called Wonder, I felt that with that script that he wrote. Yeah. Because Absolutely. that whole that whole story had been really well worked out. Everything clicked together. The characters were all rich, and it, it's the same with Faulty Towers. It it, it is plotty, and you know they, they they've talked about him and Connie Booth have talked about how it took them months, yeah. in some cases, to write these episodes, and that wasn't always the case with a lot of these other sitcoms. You know the that were powering through. You know episodes like you know like the Chesney and Wolf shows. You know that were just in the seventies yeah, that were just like, churning boom, out. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And which a lot of them are really duff because as a result, they Forty Towers is really curated, I think, and they they obsessed over every single line of dialogue, and it's why that I I, I will almost certainly ref, reference this interview again. But I listened to a really good interview podcast interview with David Renwick, the writer of um, One Foot in the Grave, recently, where he and and I've I've read things where he talked about this about how. When he watched the first episode, and I think it was either probably Gourmet Night or A Touch of Class, because I, I think A Touch of Class might have aired first and Gourmet Night was produced first. I think that's correct. Uh, and it, I think if that's the case, it, it, in both those episodes, it's much the same. He made the point that actually in the first few minutes, there aren't a vast amount of laughs. 
it's not one of those shows that straight away necessarily hits mm-hmm. you with all of the gags. It builds the character of the piece. It builds the the, the it establishes the the point of the episode and the particular farce or the particular you know a- anxiety in there, and then it escalates it slowly. And that's again something that I think wasn't necessarily common when. And, and, you know, some of these some of these shows are, are perfectly good in, in some cases, but you might get a, an are you being served? And as soon as you walk in, you've got John Inman going, I'm free, and they get a laugh straight away. Whereas you, in 40 Towers, didn't always work that way, did it? It's sort of carefully constructed to get to the jokes organically. Yeah, and I think it's there's a confidence in the writing that, that maybe we take for granted now because, you know, sitcoms and comedy shows do have a different kind of structure than they did back then in the 70s. But in, in the context of the time, yeah, you would have, you know, you'd have those, are you being served? You'd have, you know, Terry and June and all these kind of sitcoms where basically, you know, the the opening shot is an opening gag. You know, quite often there'd be a visual gag as, as the credits finished and then there'd be a little verbal gag and then you'd sort of like launch straight into it. But yeah, especially with... Um, touch of class there are just there are no there are no jokes at the beginning there's a little bit of kind of like there's a little bit of back and forth between Sybil and Basil that kind of like establishes who they are and it's sort of chucklesome but there's no kind of like you know big woofers in those first couple of minutes and I think that that's there's a there's a confidence and in fairness to the BBC there's you know they had confidence in their writers and their stars to let them do that it's the same way that the the run times are all completely different you know, each each episode, like some of them are some of them are barely half an hour. Some of them are almost 40 minutes. And mm, that's mm. very rare, to, especially back then, to see a sitcom that was just allowed to be as long as the episode needed to be. That that struck me, actually. I think it was the psychiatrist, which was about 36 minutes. I think and I'd never noticed 36, that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, really? Like, not 30? so, OK, because, yeah, it doesn't almost fit the the way that programming was done you know and that and that is is very is very interesting and you know nowadays you're finding that you're getting tv not just tv comedies but tv dramas on the streaming channels where they can be any runtime they like you know they're not necessarily in a box anymore um you know you'll get episodes of star trek discovery that are like 35 minutes long you know or you'll get episodes of game of thrones that are like one hour 20 minutes but then when when you're dealing with a time where everything is on a, a schedule of television you know, or broadcasting, having the freedom to do an episode as long as it needs to be. And that's the thing. It feels like in these cases, because none of these scripts fall down, it's amazing how they manage to construct them and them be different lengths. And them, and it, I think it just shows that that freedom allowed them to pace the thing out how, and get the structure right in whatever way they needed, as opposed to having to just write, you're done on 28, 29 minutes bosh you know or even less if you if you were doing a show on itv or channel four where you got adverts or whatever you're done on 25 minutes or whatever it would be so yeah that's really interesting that he had the freedom to do that and 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 maybe it was because at that point he was you know he he, he did have some some renown obviously because of python because that was you know quite a seminal hit you know pretty quickly you know it was part of that 60s 70s sort of zeitgeist and he was, you know, he was in with the BBC, although he, he was first rejected, I think, the first script they did. I think Jimmy Gilbert, the executive at the time, said that uh, John Cleese said, he said, this is full of cliched situations and stereotypical characters, and I cannot see it as being anything other than a disaster. 
And he said, you're going to have to get them out of the hotel. You can't do the whole thing in the hotel. And John Clee Clee said, but that's the point. The whole pressure cooker, as he described it, is why it's set in the hotel. And that's it, isn't it? If if you'd start having Basil go to the shop or you'd had an episode where him and Sybil are, I don't know, out for dinner, it just wouldn't have been the same, would it? No, no, exactly. Because you lose lose the, the, the element that creates the tension. It's like I, I know that you know we sort of think of, of Basil is Basil is the catalyst. He's not the catalyst. It's like the hotel is the catalyst. Yeah. Basil having to interact with people and <laughs> and run a hotel, it, you know that's that wouldn't be an issue if he wasn't a hotel manager. Yeah, yeah. the hotel's the the petri dish, isn't it? it yeah, completely. That, that allow, <laughs> allows the concoction to brew. You, you're definitely right. You take you take Basil out. I think I think the furthest they ever really took him was probably. In Gourmet Night, where he's thrashing the car, yes, you know, on the road, you know, which is which does work very well because it, it it works as part of the plot because he's trying to get back to the hotel to the guests. Well, exactly, and he's getting annoyed I mean, the car. I think the 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 car in, in the way that it is for a lot of people anyway. The car is an extension of the hotel. The car is yeah. is another, you know, it's a part of his his world. You know, he owns it. He exists in it. If we saw mm. Basil going out for dinner, Basil would probably actually be perfectly polite, you know, to to the staff, you know, and sort of like grumble yeah. under his breath. Yeah. You know, Basil Basil yeah. going to the shops, you know, he's 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 probably able to control himself a bit more. Yeah, out in the wider world, and so you don't need that. But when he's on a street by himself with his car, he he thrashes it with a with a with a <laughs> stick, you know. So I'm so, gonna give you a damn good thrashing, damn good thrashing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a great insight about how the car is an extension of the hotel, because that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Because the hotel is yeah is is that place he can just be that cauldron of craziness, that cauldron of rage and anxiety you know he's he's in his castle he's you know his tower yes. he's in his domain yep. and he's almost you know the only person who keeps him in check is sybil when you know when she gives him the look or she says Basil, yep. you know and he's asked, he has to <laughs> you know because really he's just a terrified and you know i think i think the i mean we're probably getting ahead of ourselves slightly but i think i think it's really unfair to characterize sybil as just the henpecking wife because sybil actually has to put up with a hell of a lot you know and there's so many other undercurrents going on she's sort of gone down as the henpecked wife and that's really unfair absolutely i mean i i think you know personally across the board i think that people tend to generalize the characters in faulty towers and it's what we were talking about you know the the quality of the writing the depth with the writing you know Uh, there is a lot more going on underneath with those performances and with the writing and and yeah, I do think people kind of like they casually look and they go, oh yeah, uh, you know, Sybil's just uh, you know shrill and Basil's mental and Polly's um, really lovely and holding it all together and Manuel is just confused. And it's like, well, these the characters, there's so much more to all yeah. of them than that. Yeah, there is. Sybil is clearly unhappy and sad about the way her life has gone and unfulfilled. You know, Polly is actually quite mercenary at, t- at points, and she's actually a little bit. She's she is nor the normal one in in a sense, but she's crafty at points, and she will do what she needs to do to either get cash or get what she needs. Oh yeah, Ma- Manuel is just uh, he. He's he's. You don't laugh at Manuel; you laugh 
for Manuel in a way. You laugh at how, how badly he's treated and yeah. how well-meaning and kind and nice the man he actually is. You know, like there's the whole bit where he goes, he, he, on his birthday, he tries to write Basil a letter and say oh, yeah. it, where he's saying, thank you so much for everything you've given me. And Basil's like, nope, just thank you, rips it up and smacks him around the end. It's just like, you know, there is more than just the basics for all of these characters, even the supporting characters, you know, even people like the Major and, and all this. It, it's it's so clever in, in the, and it's often just little lines and moments and things that just inflect and add so much to these characters i think yeah i mean they've they've all got so much going on and it's what it it what it's what makes it endure i think as a sitcom but i i think like i think that faulty towers suffers ever so slightly from its own its own success almost because we've kind of got you know, you've got this sitcom that comes along and it does all these these great things and these fun things. And then it influences um, shows that come after it. And you can absolutely see the influence of Faulty Towers in, in you know, in, in shows down down the years since it's been made. But I think that now that it's in the past, for some people, they kind of they they forget that it was it was the first you know, I think sometimes people forget because it's it's that thing, isn't it? You know, you you get something that comes along and it sort of opens things up and it, it does things in a new way or it creates characters or it, it, it focuses characters and story in a different way. And then something else comes along and does it and something else comes along and does it. And so the 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 medium itself, you know, sitcom is kind of always improving and changing. And then I think sometimes for for maybe for a younger audience, they kind of they look at you know the past forty years of sitcom as like a homogenous lump, and don't necessarily realise that well you know this thing that I really like that goes on in this modern sitcom wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for Faulty Towers. Mm. Or they look mm. at Faulty Towers and they go, oh, Faulty Towers is kind of like cheesy and it does the same thing as all these other sitcoms. It's like well no, these sitcoms have done the same thing as Faulty Towers. I think the good example of that, and one that I think they would very happily say that Faulty Towers is a major inspiration, is The Office, which we are going to talk about very soon, course, the yeah. British Office, because it's exactly the same, in that The Office is David Brent's Petri dish, where you take David Brent away from that environment, it's not quite the same. You know, you you he is he is the same kind of character in that he's he's try it's it's a different take on it. He's not grumpy as such. If if anything, he's the opposite. You know, he's trying too hard to be likable. You know, and and as a result, he 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 misses everything around him. But it so again, and that and that is a and there've been there've been quite a few, you know, examples of that. That's one of the better ones for me. But you wouldn't have characters. I think what Basil Fawlty managed to allow sitcoms to do in a way that they hadn't done massively before. I think you mentioned in our introduction episode, Hancock's Half Hour. I think maybe Tony Hancock's almost nihilistic, grumpy, you know, tragic <laughs> figure in those, in those would have informed this. But I think beyond this, you wouldn't have Brent. You wouldn't have Alan Partridge. You know, you wouldn't have these kind of comedy creations. As different they might be in some ways, they all have that Basil sense of complete lack of awareness of their their social environment, their anxieties and prejudices, and just to be honest, quite significant mental health problems. That yeah, 
that for, for in a drama wouldn't be funny, but in this context, just make you laugh for a lot, you know? And that's it. And I think it's like, I mean, Partridge, I think, is, is a great example. It's like, uh, especially once, you know, once Partridge kind of like shifted into, I, I guess, more kind of like conventional sitcom formatting. It's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Basil there. But I, I actually think like, you know, to defend Basil a little bit, you know, this kind of like insane man that he is um, and kind of like coming back a, a bit to what I was saying about how people sometimes misinterpret the characters, you know, Sybil as shrill and this kind of thing. I actually think that that Basil, in, in the same way as, as David Brent and uh, um, Alan Partridge and Victor Meldrew, Basil works best for, for me... Um, he often works best when he is actually dealing with assholes, because if you <laughs> if you actually look like the the big problem is that Basil Fawlty should not be running a hotel. He doesn't have the <laughs> he he doesn't have the temperament for it because because actually he's incredibly intolerant of stupid people. Yeah. Uh, not because he is particularly any less stupid than them, but he has absolutely no tolerance. And if you if you look at um, Faulty Towers, so often the people that he comes to, to blows with, the people that he clashes with, he doesn't necessarily instigate the, the rudeness. It's like it is people, you know, people come up to him and they are rude or they're obnoxious or they're making fun of him just because they're difficult and they're stroppy and rather than doing what a hotel manager should do which is just just sort of smile and the customer you know the customer is always right he pushes back which of course is where the 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 comedy comes from but i think if if basil was purely this kind of like aggressive character who was just nasty and rude to everybody who comes in and is polite and pleasant then actually he wouldn't be as enjoyable to watch but because people, because so many of the people he interacts with, you know, communication problems is a great one. You know, she's she's off, or even actually touch of class, the uh, the uh, yeah. police, the the police detective. Yeah. You know, yeah. when when he first walks in, obviously we've established that Basil is kind of a snob, and here comes in this you know young lad with his shaggy hair and his jacket. Got a but room? Actually, yeah, exactly. He's really got a room. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, he's he's actually really rude. Oh, you know what? Actually, but I love this is so. I'm I'm kind of like diverging slightly, but in that episode, there is a there is a line that I really love, and this is where I think actually Faulty Towers kind of like does a few things, and it says a few things that that maybe weren't as commonly acknowledged at the time. Uh, where that guy who is super rude, um, he's then quite rude to to Polly when he mm. tries to take the order and he's like, Oh, does it come with a smile? Yeah. And she, she basically, she doesn't eat, she doesn't flinch. She just kind of, you know, it's just like, no, and walks off. And I really like the fact that this 1975 sitcom is acknowledging, you know, like over 45 years ago is acknowledging that that's what women have to deal with in the workplace. No, well, Polly just sort of, she, she very, she does not so much flirt, but she does, go back and forth with him a little bit but she it's does not a bit, yeah but it's 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 only to sort of keep him in check you know she's not yes, necessarily absolutely. enjoying the fact he's being a bit of a creep you know she's doing it uh, as a deflection in a way and and that's very interesting yeah because he he is in that absolute it's a good example of that he is being a creep 
and and so you yeah he's not likable enough for you to feel like you're right this is a great great point you're making because yes mrs richards in communication problems is the ultimate version of that she's awful she's a horrible human being she is and you almost feel sympathetic for basil when she's you know shouting and bored and all this kind of thing another good example of it i think is bernard cribbins in the hotel oh my god i what a tedious yeah absolutely (laughs) bernard cribbins bernard cribbins blessing as we record is still with us he is for me one of the most underrated actors comedic actors in of the 20th century absolutely he is fantastic and in this he's amazing like he gives what he gives a performance that's almost award worthy for me playing such a pedant such an annoying irritating pernickety little man yeah yeah antagonistic little man you know and even though on a technical basis what basil should do if basil was good at his job and was the right person in his job he'd take all that on the chin when um you know i can't remember the character's name now mr hutchinson right mr hutchinson says um you know i want to uh, tape a program about squawking bird in the 1850s and all this kind of thing (laughs) and basil's going are you talking to me what he should be doing is going oh you're a tedious knob but Okay, I'll be nice. I've got to do it. You know, it's my job. You're a guest. I'll, you know, do what I need to to get, you know. But he can't. <laughs> that's 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 that, that's Basil's fault, right? In that he cannot let anything go. He cannot let anything go, and it just <laughs> it just gets well, this, him into these worst situations. This is a thing with Basil. I actually think that it <laughs> it's like if you if you were to pick Basil up and drop him into a slightly different setting he would almost become our our sort of like social warrior hero. It, it, you know, the way that, that Victor Meldrew, um, you know, again, it's like the surface, people think grumpy old man, but actually Victor is quite heroic, the way that he challenges things. And he, it's not just like the little things of like, he gets annoyed at things that we get annoyed at, but we don't challenge. We kind of mm. like, you know, we just sort of like suck it on. And say, he gets annoyed at these things and he reacts to these things. And then sometimes he is quite, heroic in in the things that he does for people you know victor meldrew you know there's, there's some oh, quite, gotcha. big, quite big dramatic ones and then some quite little simple ones and i actually think that there's an element of basil that if basil were kind of like lifted up and dropped into a slightly different situation with with the same level of mm. antagonism <clears throat> that we would be cheering him on in in that victor meldrew you know, mm. yes, you know, Basil is standing up to the the petty bureaucracies. I know, obviously, that you know, he he doesn't he doesn't get that hero status because he's running a hotel. But uh, Crib- <laughs> you know, Bernard Cribbins, it's, it's it's the perfect example of that. He is a horrible, tedious little man who is rude and obnoxious from the very get go. And uh, if you know, if we had a, an episode of a sitcom where you know one foot in the grave where victor meldrew is staying in a hotel next to bernard cribbins and has to deal with him <laughs> and then basically covers him in custard pies and kicks him out the door we'd be like yes victor and actually i think that we although we are very excited about the the actual hotel inspectors witnessing it i think in that episode you absolutely root for basil at that point you do you know you where, do. yeah you know you really it's like yeah basil basil deserves that yeah, yeah, no, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's <laughs> you're right about this in that you, I think a good example of where 
you see that he's actually that underneath there is actually not a bad guy is when in the Germans before he you know it's telling that you know the Germans has got a real reputation probably the most controversial episode of Forty Towers for the you know the the, the Nazi walk and all the all the jokes about Germans yeah, and Nazism yeah. and all this um, and the Holocaust. But the point of that is that Basil actually he gets knocked on the head and he's 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 out of it and he's on drugs and he's gone back to yes. the hotel and he shouldn't be there. He's not well. And then yeah. all of these, you know, ridiculous prejudices come out. Now, earlier in the episode, you see real racism when the major starts yeah. talking about, oh, Germans, rah, you know, it's kind of thing. Absolutely, I don't like Germans. Yeah. And Basil's going, oh, you know, forgive and forget. You know, it's they're not all bad, that kind of thing. And um you know, and also there's another one. I think I don't think it's that episode. It might be a different one where he's um, the major. And this this was an episode that was taken off. I think it was BritBox or Netflix last year, um, where the major says the M word. Oh no, um, that is the Germans. It is the Germans. Yeah. Is it still the Germans? It and, is. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he uses the M word, and he's talking about West Indian cricketers and the W word actually. Yes. Um, yeah. And and Basil doesn't he doesn't agree. You know, there's no, he's not in league with the major with this. You see the real racism, that colonial racism. Because Basil in many ways is that sort of post, post-colonial figure after the days of empire in that he, it, what I think Basil wants or he thinks he wants is to be running a hotel in this very sort of colonial major sort of way. You know, it's why he, he makes jokes about shrapnel in his leg from the Korean yeah. War, you know, <laughs> yeah. that he never fought in. Or the one of the best jokes of the show when he's, he's saying it, he says... I was in the Korean War. I killed four men. And Ben Sybil goes, he was in the catering corps. He used to poison them, which is just yeah. an amazing line. Even the characters in the show laugh at what she says there. But like, it's it's that whole, I think he wants, in his head, he wants to be this martial sort of figure. But then deep down, he's, he's, too, he's too sensitive and he's too, I wouldn't say caring, but he's too, he's too fragile a, a person to actually do that, <laughs> you know, no, in a I way. That, well, I, the, Thing, I always think is interesting about Basil in terms of, of his age and the, the time that he's living through. And, uh, you know, there's a there's probably a little bit of sort of headcanon coming into play in terms of his background. But you think about Basil, he is he, he is roughly John Cleese's age. Yeah, um, yeah. I think he's probably a little bit older than John Cleese. I, I maybe think, maybe early 40s he's meant I, to be I at that point, very, I reckon. Early 40s and Cleese is probably yeah. like late 30s. But mm. um so he's he's roughly, you know, John Cleese's age, but a little bit older. And I think that Basil is someone who is is probably very much aware that that John Cleese, um, obviously, p- particularly in the context of of the era that he grew up and was, you know, doing his most prominent work, John Cleese was a very liberal, forward thinking, uh, you know, kind of like left left minded kind of, you know. Uh, sort of you know the oxbridge intellectual type the kind of the new wave uh of of kind of like you know liberalism i guess uh, without being the kind of the long-haired hippie type and i feel like basil is somebody who kind of he almost feels like he would he should be that he can sort of see that as being what i should be i should be the kind of like the more liberal minded open minded pro europe kind of person but he's also held back by that more kind of like traditional, you know, how his how his sort of his parents' his background may have been that more kind of like you know uh, conservative. I, I I always imagine that there's a little bit of a 
a conflict in Basil that he's basically Basil, Basil is not quite brave enough. And I think that, you know, the major using the N-word is, is the perfect example because you see Basil's face. He doesn't look comfortable with no. it, but he doesn't, he doesn't challenge it. And that's the thing. He ignores it and he lets it go. And there's obviously that sense of like, it's it's the generational thing. Um, and obviously in that episode earlier on, he sort of does a double take when he meets the, the doctor who's black. But then as soon as he establishes that he's a doctor and is therefore a bit of an authority figure, he, he goes into that slightly sort of um, Basil Grovelly mode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even like the sort of the, the attitudes of, of towards the Germans, I think is fascinating because... Again, it's not it's not that it's acceptable, but it is understandable for someone of of his age to have conflicted feelings about the Germans because he's just old enough to have been affected by the Second World War directly. But he's trying very hard not to be prejudiced, even to the point even when he comes back and he has been bashed on the head and he's on drugs and he's basically sort of losing his mind. He's still trying so hard to be polite and not mention the war. I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's a fantastic catchphrase, but it's so, that's kind of like, that was the, the sensibility of the whole country. You know, everybody's yeah. kind of like, it's the 70s, we're, we're part of Europe, most of the Germans, you know, weren't even born, so just don't mention the war. And it, yeah. it, it's a perfect, it encapsulates so much of that, you know, that point in time and how people were trying to feel and react to it. That's brilliant. That's so, so true. Yeah, because it was. It was this. This came out. I think we joined the uh, the Europe in like 1973, 1974, something like that. Uh, yes, I think it was um, four. I think. I think it was during Ted Heath's reign as prime minister. So this is being in Europe in the EU or what would have been the. I think it was the EEC then. It, the the yeah. EU was a bit later, wasn't it? Being part of the common market though, and in the European community, was new. It was new to the country. Yes, been a referendum. Everyone was, you know. People have mostly gone into it. And I think there was an optimism at that point. <laughs> We're talking about this in 2021. I don't think we know yeah, what optimism yeah. is anymore. But like <laughs> at that point, <laughs> certainly with Europe, there's an optimism. And I think it's reflected. You're absolutely spot on. I think the don't mention the war. The whole joke is that Basil's trying not to do exactly what he ends up doing. Yes. And the don't mention the war has gone down as probably his his catchphrase, really. I think, I think if you so, had a yeah, Basil catchphrase, kind of his- it's that even though it was only one episode, you know, it's not like with Del Boy where he says lovely jubbly every week or, you know, Victor Meldry with, I don't believe it. This is, this was once, but it's got, it had yeah. such an impact. The don't mention the war. And it's, it ref, it sums up 40 towers in many ways because, and it's fascinating. The Germans, it's really, it's really horrible in a way because they're really, really disturbed by the things he's saying. They start crying. Yeah. They start, you know, yes. they just break down with this sorrow, you know, at what their, their parents probably, or, or they, them as children, had to go through because one of those German guys yeah. is probably about 50 himself. So he'd lived through that. He's just, yeah, I was um, going to say he's sort of old enough, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a fascinating, you could get into all kinds of fascinating ideas there. Where, how, what, what was he doing during the war? Like, you know, all of this, because the, 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 it's just, there's so much there that you could go into, but I think it, it's very, it's very interesting how the episode it, it, it present it does I don't think it really presents Basil as a racist in the way that you might think it does because no I don't think it does either no I, it presents the major as a racist because yes. it's that colonial racism that ingrained racism you, we can assume the major is probably around 70 odd you know at that point so he's 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 been there from the start from the end of the Victorian era right through 
and he's seen all the and he's he's just this this little major living in a hotel in Torquay, completely divorced from any kind of cultural metropolitan change in any way. And Basil's sort of trapped in this. That's the thing. And that's why Torquay, I think, is such an interesting place to set this, because Devon, it's not, you know, even now, Devon and Cornwall isn't the most liberally enlightened place in no. the world, I don't necessarily think. So then, you know, you would have it's very easy for him to lose that perspective. And it's and what I think is great is the show never really ever pins down details in terms of backstory. You never yeah, really absolutely. know. You there are there are the odd references. I think in one episode he sort of suggests that they've run the hotel for 15 years or something like that. I think it's so the only, oh, well actually I think in I think in the first series they referenced 12 years. Yeah. So, I think, so by the second series it might be 15, yeah. Maybe, yeah. So the suggestion is that maybe they started the hotel around the early 60s-ish, you know, mid to early 60s. And presumably they got married not not long before. You can maybe guess they got married in maybe the late 50s. They got married young is the is the key i think with oh this, i have because... this whole i have this whole backstory in my head of exactly how they got there <laughs> well there's <laughs> there's a very there's a great book actually about the making of 40 towers i don't know if you've read it but it's um in in that i'm pretty sure i remember either john cleese or prunella scales talking about what that how they they felt they believed that sybil was much much more working class that basil was mm-hmm. maybe middle class came from not maybe the aristocracy he thinks or he aspires towards but the, a perfectly middle class Middle England kind of place yeah. in London, where Sybil was working class, a good time girl in the late 50s, 60s, maybe attracted to Basil's charm, debonair young man, you know, because he's tall, he's handsome, he's broad. Yeah. Like in theory, Basil, if he if he smartened up and he wasn't this little, you know, swirly dervish, <laughs> yeah. could look a good, handsome man. Like, so, you know, there's that, there's that maybe attraction that was there at the beginning. But then it very, very quickly died away when they they fell into this domesticity for whatever reason, didn't have children. And it's just built up into this rancor over the years. And what, what's your what's your headcanon backstory? Because they, they, they said that's a possibility. That's not definite. That's just a possibility, you know, I, which is interesting. I mean, for me, it's kind of similar. I've all like some, genuinely, maybe it's because I'm, I'm an optimist. I've always felt it's quite important that they were genuinely very in love when they met. That's always been a key thing for yeah. me. I've always imagined that they were very much in love. And although it's gone sour now, I still think they're fiercely loyal. I think if 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 someone mm. came in and actually, you know, tr- well, you sort of you see it, you know, when when each of them are flirting with other people, yeah. they get quite yeah. they get quite grumpy. I think if anyone was was really mean, like unnecessarily mean, to the other i think they would get very i think they would get very sort of like protective and aggressive but yeah i think i mean my sort of like my my head cannon is kind of yeah i always imagined early 50s quite young i always imagined that they were genuinely you know fell in love and i i i do i feel like yeah sybil was probably you know upper working class and basil was probably lower middle class just enough that he yeah. you know he seemed better and for me, I've always imagined that that Basil had a really good job, a good sort of like middle level job. They get married a few years in, five or six years in, they start to feel the seven year itch. And for whatever reason, they don't have kids. And I quite, because I'm a bit, 
nihilistic that way i quite like to imagine that they can't have kids that maybe they they felt the relationship sagging they tried to have kids find out that they couldn't and and that kind of like was not necessarily the nail in the coffin but that really sours the relationship and then because basil is so highly strung and hates people so much he hates his job his well-paid job he hates it they can't have kids they're not happy and so they Sybil basically says, let's open a hotel. You'll be your own boss. You can do what you like. It'll be our, you know, our baby. You know, this this is the perfect. And I imagine that they opened that hotel and thought it was going to make their life brilliant. And I also like to think that the first year, the first year of that hotel, <laughs> they actually were really happy. I think they were really yeah. happy. And then it just goes downhill. So that's that's yeah. my kind of, you know, that's kind of my my head canon. I feel like there's a little bit of tragedy, but I yeah. think there was some genuine love and affection. And I think the problem is as well, you've got to remember, it's like the the period of time, you know, who they were, the age they were. It's the age where you don't necessarily get divorced. It's very easy for us yeah. these days yeah. to look at these old sitcoms and it seems so, it seems so irritating you watch a sitcom you you watch an old sitcom from the 60s or 70s where you've got husbands and wives who seem to hate each other and you you look at it and you go why are they married why don't they just get a divorce it's like but actually people just didn't do that people people didn't live together first especially not you know in the 50s basil and sybil's age they don't live together they don't get a flat for like six years and go well this has been nice but let's move on they get married the marriage you know the relationship goes sour and they try to fix it with kids that doesn't work they try and fix it with a big change to the hotel and that doesn't work and then you've got these characters 10 15 years later who appear to be miserable i mean i'd love to see what they're doing now i'd love to (laughs) (laughs) well did you um did you see because i when i was looking into this this episode i remembered something i stumbled upon something i remember watching at the time where they did do you remember hotel babylon on bbc one Oh, goodness, yeah. It was a really sort of cheesy, sort of sexy hotel sort of place sort of show. Yeah, I remember. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and they did a, a Children in Need special that was a bit meta, actually, in that mm. they, they had the cast and they were talking about how, you know, they were they have this sexy hotel and they're all sexy people in this sexy hotel. And then they're getting a new boss. And it turns out to be Prunella Scales, a Sybil, who comes <laughs> in. Yeah, this is like 2007, right? So yeah. bear in mind, like, this is years after this. And she comes in and she gives, she says, okay, things are changing. And it's basically, they're going to de-sexify this hotel. And at that point, the, <laughs> at that point, the Faulty Towers theme comes in and you've got Paul Shane from Heidi Hires, the bellhop. You've got Frank Thornton from <laughs> Are You Being Served as the, you know, the, the maitre d'. You know, you've got June Whitfield as the bell, as the woman in the lift trying to do that. And, and, and then you've got Sybil as the, the gaffer. You know, and she's on the yeah. phone going, "Oh, I know," and all this. So it's a proper. I mean, it's 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 awkward in a way because it's she's not playing the Sybil in a way that she did because she's like mid seventies. Yeah, she's and she's playing the, the it, caricature of Sybil. Yeah, it's um, yeah, but it's funny in the sense that, and it doesn't give you any indication of the character. They don't even call her Sybil, but no. you know who she <laughs> is because yeah. of how she's dressed, of what she says. And so it's interesting in that, and there was also, did you see that John Cleese and Andrew Sachs, not long before he died, did some like shorts or some adverts as Basil and Manuel? 
Yeah, um, it was a, a, rant, a couple of TV adverts, wasn't it? Yeah, that were terrible. You know, and I was, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, like this is the... And to be fair to him, John Cleese has said that I think when they did the 30th anniversary stuff in 2009, which was the first time that Connie Booth spoke properly about the show as well after years, they, they said, we'd never write another one because the expectation is too high, we're too old. And I mean, it is one of those things that you... Yes, in a way, it'd be fascinating to see where they are now, really old. But I always think with these kind of sitcoms that they they should perpetually remain where they are. You know, that it's almost like they're in a space where they should always stay and they should just be preserved in amber <laughs> in, these, <Yeah. laughs> in these places, really. So I'd like to think almost that Faulty Towers, maybe it's got a snazzy rebrand, maybe it's part of a chain, <laughs> but it's still <laughs> it's still there, you know? Maybe now Basil and Sybil have just been bought out and they're just guests like the Major who just live there and Basil's just getting annoyed, <laughs> going, oh, this is terrible! Um, but who knows? Yeah, they, yeah they, probably, they probably retired a few years ago. They probably got a nice, yeah. a nice big offer on it because it was a big hotel. They mm. sold it for a cool, you know, couple of million. And now they're just living in a nice bungalow on, you know, on the, the seashore somewhere, just mm. bickering with each other and watching UK yeah. gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've just realised that the very first exposure I had to Faulty Towers, this was at, as a kid. Uh, so we're probably talking like, you know, mid mid 80s at some point. There was a an advert for, I think it was Kellogg's Corn Flakes, where Andrew Sachs was sat in a, <laughs> in a hotel dining room. And he pours a bowl of cornflakes and he eats them and he has like a flashback. And then he gets up and he starts going, oh, me, I cleared the table, I cleared the table. And starts like running around doing his Manuel thing. <laughs> and then he kind of snaps out of it. And then whatever caption it was, you know, cornflakes take you back or something. And as a kid, I saw that and I had no idea why my father was laughing. And he was like, yeah. oh, well, it's he used to be in this show called Faulty Towers. And then Faulty Towers was repeated, you know, at some point quite soon after that. Mm. I've just remembered that. Yeah, there's some random stuff. There was oh, yeah. also that he um, he recorded uh, Andrew Sachs in the early 80s. He recorded a, uh, a version of Joe Dolce's Shut Up of Your Face oh, yes. with different lyrics. And then and Joe Dolce sued, so it never got released. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's all kinds of random stuff. There's some interesting stuff, actually, while we're, while we're sort of going into the past about the, the beginnings of this, isn't there? I don't know how much you know about the inspirations and things for... For, for Forty Towers, but um, oh yeah, 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 the story um, of the, the guy they met. There was the guy, yeah. Well, there were two things that 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 it all started with a guy. They went to the Python stayed at a hotel called the Glen Eagles, which isn't there anymore, in Torquay, and they met a guy called Donald Sinclair, who was it was the the template for Basil. You know, he was he was just, and it, it sounds like you said earlier that Basil is rude to people who most of the time who aren't who deserve it in a way. Whereas in yeah. this case, this guy was just rude to people who didn't. <laughs> but yes, yeah. it, like he was just awful. As Mike, Michael Palin said, that he seemed to view us as a colossal inconvenience. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, uh, he just didn't want his guests to be there. And they, and I think that they stayed, him and, because obviously Cleese and Connie Booth were married at this point. Um, and they, they stayed to observe Sinclair a little bit more. It was interesting though, because years later, I mean, the family of him, he died not long after the show came out, I think, because he was getting on. But the family have always furiously re resented this 
from what I remember. <laughs> I've, I've, said, I've read articles about this years later where the family have said, you know, they, he was misrepresented. He wasn't what they said. He's gone down in history as this awful hotelier. And they, they hated John Cleese for this. But, like, <laughs> you can't blame him. And he, and he, he actually templated Basil in an episode of Doctor in the House in the early 1970s. I, I, I was just going to say, yeah, it's like there was a little bit of a, a proto-Basil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, just a uh, the character in that show that Cleese was writing for checks into a small town hotel, and the manager's Basil like got a domineering wife. But you know that that was a much more of a safe seventy sitcom kind of environment to do oh, that. Very whereas, much, yeah, Forty Towers has the has this edge. You know, it constantly had has this edge, and it's still got it now. I think, which is remarkable. Of yeah, the edge of everything that's not being said. You know, in that, you know, going back to Basil and Sybil's marriage, you have, as you say, they flirt with different people. There's the there's the one, um, I think it might be the wedding party, which is a, the, the the great example of sexual frustration, as is the psychiatrist. Oh, yes. And the psychiatrist, I think, is my favourite episode for lots of reasons. But in those episodes, there's all this sexual tension, this undercurrent of sexual unfulfillment and sexual liberation um, going on. And in that one... There's the French one, Mrs. Penoir, who is yes, Mrs. Penoir. clearly <laughs> fancies Basil and he's flirting with him terribly. And then he and he goes into that sort of suave mode. He's like, oh, well, you know, ha ha. And he's flirting with her. And you're like, this, maybe this is the guy that Sybil met and was charmed by. Well, I think exactly, that's exactly it. You know, it's like with a lot of relationships when you stop trying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I, don't, I don't need to wash it. Yeah, shower every day. No, no, no. We've been yeah, nah. together now. Once a week. Yeah. Once a week. <laughs> exactly. I think I think you're you're right though. It's like that's the you know she she's you know she's a, a sort of a sexy vibrant woman you know around the same. Well, I think she's meant to be a smidge older than him, but you know, mm. and you kind of think, well, yeah, this is this because they're they're both attractive people and they they both show that they can put the charm on when they need to and and, but you find Sybil tends to flirt with men who are maybe more towards the class that she is like there's the one um there's the one the the guy with the shirt open you know the uh, Mr Johnson the guy and and Basil spends (laughs) (laughs) he spends the whole episode trying to smoke out his girlfriend just checking the doors yeah um and uh, and he just gets more. That's just amazing. But yeah, she's flirting with him and all this. And then, and then whenever she's flirting with these kind of guys, there's another guy as well in the bar that she flirts with who's similar. And she's she always then descends into the cackle laugh and the oh that kind of thing. And to me, that's that's really who she is. You know, the Sybil that she presents to people, the the upwardly mobile woman that she's pretending to be in a way, or she is in this persona as the hotel manager. You know, a woman who runs the hotel. The reality is that she's really you know, much more of a down-to-earth kind of... And, and maybe that's the kind of bloke that she is ha- would be happier with in a way, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, she's, I think... but she was attracted to Basil's, you know, maybe being slightly more on the surface, charming, debonair, slightly more educated. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that maybe is what she thought she wanted more. I mean, I'm, when they were younger, Basil probably treated her a lot better than, than, yeah. those, you know, than those other guys did. But yeah, you're, you're, exactly. you're absolutely right. I feel like there's there's reception desk civil, which is the kind of like hello, welcome, to faulty time, yeah. please. Yeah. And then there's the bar civil, which is which goes a bit Barbara Windsor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also totally. it's this, you know, you see the fact that she, I mean, she, you know, she she obviously has to put up with a lot, and she she does plenty around the hotel. 
but of an evening she does she does bugger all you know she goes into the bar and has a drink and and basil is sort of the one running around meant to be i mean there's the whole where you've got the family that are in there and they keep ordering the you know the the scotch and soda lemon <laughs> squash yeah. and he just keeps ordering it again and again and sybil is just sat there l- looking yeah. and like and like kind of like pesters basil to do it it's like she does nothing of an evening it's like you say you know perhaps she was yeah. a bit of a good time girl she might have been a, a barmaid or something when she's younger mm. she has a drink um and she flirts with people and she lets out her inner barbara windsor yeah because it's i think it's as well it's this you get this idea of what you know, when Basil and, and Sybil decided to run a hotel, it's like they obviously wanted different things. Sybil very clearly wanted that, you know, sort of like lady, you know, landlady thing. She wanted that mm. kind of, you know, the sort of the hostess thing, whereas Basil wanted his, you know, his elite, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, Kenyan retreat, retreat type hotel <laughs> situation. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's also at odds. Plus, I guess I guess Sybil is she's more comfortable it's that thing, isn't it? It's like you get the, the as Basil would put it, the working class oiks come up to the desk. Basil mm. can't interact with them, but Sybil can, she can instantly switch yeah. into that mode of communicating yeah. with them. He can't do that. He's He finds no. them either uncouth or irritating or a threat, I think, in yes, some ways. Yeah. He doesn't really understand counterculture. He doesn't really understand that, you know, you've no. got these guys who are symbols of like free love and, you know, Sybil says that Sybil gets it. She understands it. She's reading Cosmopolitan. You know, she's talking about, you know, doing her hair in the style of a girl who's with Burt Reynolds. You know, she's she's there trying to explain, you know, the fertility symbols on Mr. Johnson's yeah. chest and all <laughs> yeah. this. And Basil's, and she says, you think people should be sexy like Gladstone and Baden-Powell, don't you? And that kind of thing. So, <laughs> you know, and, and that's it. And he's like, well, you know, they had dignity and that kind of stuff. So it's, they're coming at, at the, the time that they're in, and obviously this is after the 60s, but it would have been interesting to see them in the 60s and how they how they responded to that because the, the show for me feels like it's it's in the wake of, of that decade, you know, in that if you'd made Faulty Towers 10 years before or before that 10 years before, it wouldn't have been quite the same. I think the fact it's in the 70s is, is, yeah. is key because it's sort of like we're edging towards what was – at that point, new and fresh, being a bit increasingly old and stale, and the country's not doing so good at this point, you know, certainly to in the second season, you know, second series, the country's on a bit of a slump. You know, this is just at the cusp of Thatcherism. Things are about to change again. So you've got a lot of you've got a lot of stuff going on. And I suppose that that factors into um, you know, the immigration aspects. You know, Manuel, you know, every it's it's easy to forget how interesting Manuel is in terms of what he represents, because He's he's cheap labour. He's cheap Spanish labour in an e in an EEC system where it's easier to get foreign labour now from Europe come in and work. And Basil's paying somebody to do a really difficult job for peanuts, basically. And Manuel is is again they're all they're all in their own way upwardly mobile. Manuel is one of those people coming from you know his little village in Spain, leaving his five brothers or aunties mm-hmm. or sisters or whatever, and. <laughs> when he gets drunk, he says, "Living by five mothers and six yeah. aunties." Like a... <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he's he's leaving behind his home, and he's and mm. he's constantly he's ne- he's purely he's naive. He ends up being Basil Stooge, but he he's he's always just trying to do the right thing and fit in and be a good person. 
and he's treated horrendously for it. And this this is where Basil really does come off badly because it's not oh, so much that he's... I don't think it's so much that he's racist, you know, when he says things like, oh, he's from Barcelona. It's more that he's dismissive. He's dismissive of, of other cultures. He's dismissive Absolutely. of... Manuel is just a tool to be used. He's not a person in Basil's eyes. And I think that's that's crucial. I think the only person who really sees him as a human being is Polly quite often. Yeah, well, one of my my favourite elements, is, it kind of like runs through it, it pops up in different episodes, is when Manuel does something wrong and Basil is sort of like, you know, he's quizzing Polly on what happened and he gets to the point of saying, whose fault is it? And Polly just goes, um, I don't know. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she's kind of because I think like Man Manuel is a fascinating character because it it's exactly that. It's like Basil has brought him over because he's cheap labor, but Basil has also picked the cheapest of the cheap labor. Yeah, because <laughs> because he could have got somebody Spanish who spoke English. He could have got somebody yeah. Spanish who was a good waiter. And Manuel, as as much as Manuel is a is a lovely person who just wants to help, he is also an idiot. Yeah. Because you know, once you sort of like you take, yeah. once you take the language away, um, there are moments where literally people are pointing at things, <laughs> and he still can't get it right. It's like I, you know, I I've, I feel like Manuel Manuel lied. You know, Basil sort of said, you know, have you been a waiter before? And Manuel just yeah. said yes. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been a waiter for many years, and he hasn't. He's you know he's been a you know, he herded goats or he was like a butcher's <laughs> assistant or something. Like that. Manuel doesn't have the skills and he doesn't have no. the uh, the ingenuity, but he's he's enthusiastic. And if the language barrier was not a problem, you might get away with it. But because he's because he's dumb, because he needs to be spoon fed, but they cannot spoon feed him. Because the other mm. factor is that that Basil maintains that he can speak Spanish <laughs> that's the that's the other thing because if you notice it's like basil thinks he can speak spanish but thinks yeah. that manuel can't yeah <laughs> polly polly can speak some spanish which is why yeah. she usually gets the most you know she usually gets the best results out of manuel um sybil can't speak spanish and doesn't try she actually no. interacts with manuel very little compared to the other two mm. But even taking that into account, it's like if if Manuel was not Spanish, if he was just sort of like, you know, if he was if he was Cockney or if he was a Brummy or if he was like an, a doddery old bloke who was very cheap, I think Basil would still be as cruel as he is. I, I don't think his cruelty comes from from racism. I think mm. I think. Mm. But like you say, his his dismissive nature, he's dismissive of Manuel's culture and the language barrier and he yeah he sort of uses he uses the fact that he's from barcelona as a kind of a oh if i tell people he's from barcelona they'll understand that he's an idiot yeah it's that, yeah, it's yeah. that kind of i guess the sort of low-key institutional racism yeah totally i was just going to say this i was exactly what i was going to say in that yeah. it is that sort of institutional racism that's just there and i think in a way faulty towers is commenting on that in that that's exactly what people would have felt like at that time. And to be yeah. fair, that's still there now in, in some ways. You know, Absolutely. in certain pockets of England, much as, yeah, the cities are now much more metropolitan and inclusive and multicultural. There are pockets of England, and we've seen this, frankly, with the Brexit vote, that do mm -hmm. think of these European and beyond cultures in the same way. They do think of the Germans as crates. They do think of the, you know, the Spaniards as Dago Burr brains, which is one of the things that Manuel's called... In, oh in my, one of the you episodes. know what? 
it's really interesting because sorry to to, to cut in there but that no. that particular line it's the guy delivering the gnome yeah and it's it, it's really funny because in my brain i think oh it's the 70s everyone was a little bit racist and you know they say dago 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 like oh it's the 70s but interestingly when that guy sort of says you know calls him dago there's a little there's like a little gasp from the audience yeah yeah, yeah like there is yeah. a moment of shock and it's kind of like i mean not not that i was surprised but i think we're so used to this idea that in the 70s people just think racism is funny but actually no the audience were kind of like oh that's that's a bit harsh that's not very mm. nice mm. and again that's sorry i interrupted fact- you sir no, no, no. You, exactly. I think that's that's spot on. And it, it, again, it could be the fact that you know we're in Europe and there is this idea yeah. that we need to be more inclusive, and that's what we start to see. Definitely. Um, and that Basil's intentionally, you know, a commentary on how little Englanders maybe do still have some of these views. But and and that's why I feel like, you know, I didn't agree with taking the Germans off Netflix. You know, I I agree no. with the moves that you know when when and um, you know like TCM taking Gone with the Window and things. I, I agree with the move The move of maybe putting some level of disclaimer on the top of it saying this contains content. And I think quite often I saw it for an old episode of Coronation Street on BritBox, funnily enough, and they put on it, this contains, view, this, this contains views that are um, something like of their time for audiences. Yes, yeah. And I think that's perfect. You then leave people to make the choice. If you want to, if don't censor, engage with it. Accept that these things were there, quite often in a context that people don't really see unless they look at it. You know, Forty Towers is, is yeah. that completely the context? Oh, of absolutely. The major saying what he does, or you know how the Irish are portrayed in uh, the episode with Mister O'Reilly, the builders. You know, yeah. which is the classic Irish stereotype, the thick Irish joke. As yes. the, the Irish builder. The Irish builder was a comedy, you know, he's a crook, he's, you know, he's all up to, you know, that stuff, you know. Um, and it, it is, they are stereotypes, but they're intentional. You know, that's the thing. I don't think Faulty Towers is doing the kind of thing that you did see in 76. I mean, you did see in things like On the Buses or, you know, some of these shows, you know, or um, yeah, the kind of absolutely. things that would star like Mike Reed and Arthur Mullard, you know, all these kind yeah. of all these kind of shows that were horribly racist. Like Love Thy Neighbour, which was bafflingly, people are trying to reconceptualize as being ahead of its time like no sorry i'm not having that well, <laughs> love thy neighbor is a weird one because it's you know. like because i think the the writers themselves have kind of admitted that they they wanted to create a kind of a subversive alf garnet type but that they were they were writing so quickly that they just started using racist gags it's like they, yeah mm. they've kind of said this you know we we had lofty intentions but it was easier to get you know put put in a honky and we get a good laugh it's Mm. like and i think that's that i mean it's that also feeds back to what we were saying about faulty towers having faulty towers had space to breathe and it had confidence and it wasn't churning out 13 episodes um you know every six months and so faulty towers did actually say so i mean it's i i genuinely you know i'm not just trying to pontificate i think faulty towers is saying something across the board you know as we've been discussing about class about race about you know the the changing uh social landscape about europe faulty towers is is commenting on it i think that yeah i mean i i i agree entirely i i I don't think you should censor. I think you should just put warnings. You know, you can put a warning at the beginning. I mean, there, there are some warnings on episodes of The Muppet Show. 
Yeah. Uh, you mm. know, and it's not because the Muppet show is, is hugely racist. It's because there are some, you know, like cultural insensitivities, which you kind of, you know, don't necessarily want to expose certain people to, or you want to avoid exposing to, but then you can, you can watch it if you like, and then you can explore the, the context of, of, you know, the attitudes of the time. And I think Faulty Towers is such a good example because it's an interesting one. You, if you look at the context of Faulty Towers, it was the mid seventies and there weren't necessarily, you know, sitcoms or dramas, you know, sitcoms in particular weren't necessarily addressing um, race or xenophobia in that same way. And I think, I think again, with like context, it's like, if we were, if we were addressing those subjects now, we might do them differently um we might do it in a different way and also there's the there's the difficulty of of who is addressing it so it's like if you look at 19 you know 1975 um and the the use of the n-word and and i think the show is definitely criticizing that they're not just getting a cheap gag out of it i think they're definitely criticizing racism and racist attitudes and their and the the cowardice of avoiding challenging racism i think that's all addressed there and that's great because back then maybe that wasn't being done enough. However, what you can look at is like, well, are two white middle class writers the <laughs> correct people to be addressing sure. this? Yeah. Because um, today, you know, if it was today, you might say, well, actually, you're not the right people to be tackling that. Mm. But in 1975, there were not the same opportunities. Um, you know, the, the the people and the communities and people from the background that are affected by these this racism, this xenophobia, they didn't necessarily have the position to address that. So I think it's, yeah, context, context is so key. Context is so key. And it's that thing of, you know, two middle-aged white people in the 70s trying to tackle racism and sexism and homophobia, maybe don't do it in the way that we would like them to do, but they were the only people doing it 45 mm. years ago. Yeah. And it deserves Actually, credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. I've just remembered as well, like the, um, uh, what is it? Gourmet night. Mm. Um, so the, the, the chef, Kurt, Kurt, Kurt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The chef. Yeah. The show is so, re- even Basil is incredibly relaxed about the fact that this character is gay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, true. You know, he falls in love with you know the whole the whole evening goes to shit because <laughs> because he has fallen in love with Manuel, been rejected by Manuel, and then he's got yeah. drunk. Yeah, and and it could very you know it could very easily have been that that he fell in love with Polly and yeah. got drunk. Yeah, mm. um, you know so but and it's so so gently. Um, you know the, sh- the the episode sort of opens pretty much with Polly celebrating having sold. A picture and then we find that it's she sold the picture to the chef um and uh the picture was a picture of manuel and then because they've got this chef from a local restaurant you kind of get a feeling when the the restaurateur says goodbye to kurt you kind of get the feeling that maybe the drinking he it, it wasn't such a generous thing that he gave his head chef over yeah. to the forties. yeah um, but it's brilliant because you know apart from Apart from, uh, you know, finding out what's happened, Basil's kind of like, oh, I knew I should never have hired a Frenchman. And Polly's like, he's Greek. And he goes, well, there you go. They invented it. But apart from that, (laughs) 
that's the that's the nearest thing you get to any negativity about yeah. it. And then later, you know, he he tells Manuel that he should have kissed him to you know yeah. so that the night could have gone well. And then oh, the what's point, one little you know? Like, yeah, what's like, what's one little kiss? And then later on, when he's angry at Manuel, he just goes, "I don't know what he sees in you." <laughs> uh, but that's it. There's no there's no point at which Basil kind of you know considering that Basil gets so no. het up when sexy ladies you know are yeah. kind of like room hopping he I, I just think it's really interesting that the show is so casual in mm. its approach to to it which which I think is interesting in terms of like you know the 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 attitudes on television versus the attitudes you know in in real life you know th- things were a lot more comfortable Mm. Uh, or things were sorry things were becoming more comfortable in the real world but still weren't being reflected on television i just yeah it, it fascinates me it, it is it's really fascinating I, I think i don't think i think it's more with basil that he, it's less that he's racist or homophobic or anything like that i think he just doesn't want people to be having fun oh that's the, it that's <laughs> like that's entirely what it is yeah that's what it is he's, <laughs> he's jealous because he's stuck in this life that he that part of him doesn't really want and that he hates the thought yeah. that other people in this hotel are having more fun than him. And whenever that happens, he starts to get really, he starts all his, his uppity kind of, he's like, he's like a dad <laughs> in that episode. He's like a, da- a, a disapproving yeah. father whose son has snuck a girl home and he's doing his best to try and put, you know, not under my roof. You know, it's that, it's yeah. that encapsulated and it's, it's brilliantly done. Finally, before we, before we come to the end of this, we mm. haven't talked about Polly and I think Polly is one of a fascinating character in that she is in theory the straight man slash woman in this case the 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 normal yeah. person in a in an air in a room full of eccentrics Polly now she she's the audience's way in in some ways she's a, a Canadian waitress working there you know in Torquay again her past is mysterious in some ways you don't quite know how Polly's ended up there she's an artist she's a she's a bit bohemian she's creative I think. She um, presents as a nice waitress, perfectly nice. And she is, for the most part. She's quite mm-hmm. kind. She does help people out and that kind of thing. But I also think she's a bit crafty. And I know there's, there's that one episode where, I think it's the builders, where they the, all the doors have been boarded up or everything. Like oh, yes. Basil's yeah. frantic trying to sort it out. And she starts drawing. Like, she starts drawing Basil because she can see something artistic in how he looks. And she, and he's like, go, you can't do this now. There's, and there's, for me, and there's little things like where she's in on his schemes points like yes. when with the money with mrs richards and the 80 pounds or whatever you know she's she's in on that you know and she will and, and i just think that she's very interesting in that obviously particularly at the time Con- uh, connie booth and john cleese were married when they wrote season one but they were divorced or they were getting divorced yes. when they wrote yeah. series two so that's fascinating in the, in that that they almost they were a married couple when they wrote this they wrote a bitter married couple with Basil and Sybil. But then at the same time, I always feel like Polly and Basil act like a marriage in a different kind of way in this show. Yeah, I I I absolutely see that. I think I mean my my sort of my baseline with Polly is I, I, I agree pretty much that she's you know she's fundamentally you know quite nice but quite crafty. I think the core thing with Polly is that she's lazy. Yeah. I think that she's really she's just really lazy yeah um and i don't just mean like you know sleepy do no work lazy but in terms in terms of taking the easiest path and yeah she's she's come over and 
she's basically found a job in a hotel. It probably doesn't pay as well as some other jobs, mm. but she has room and board. And the key thing is, if she went and did a better paying job, she would have to do more work. Yeah, yeah. And so by putting up with Basil's bullshit, by <laughs> getting involved in some of his schemes, it that kind of affords her uh, a flexibility. It affords her to, to talk back. She talks back to him. Um, mm. in a way that other people don't necessarily do. No, um, and she gets and away she, with it as she well. Gets, yeah, she gets away with so much. So by putting up with, basically, with his abuse, which any normal waitress would not do, she is allowed to basically do what she likes at work. Mm. And, and I think this is the thing. I think she's she's too lazy to get a better job. She's capable of getting a better job. But she's too, I mean, it's like even down to, yeah, when, when the builder's coming, you know, she's been left in charge, but she goes for a sleep and leaves <laughs> Manuel in charge. And it's like, yeah. I mean, that's a very, I mean, that's a very specific example of laziness, but it's, it's true, that thing. It's like, but yeah, how many, how many other jobs when it's like, you know, <laughs> at, at any other hotel, if they said, Polly, you are in charge. We have this thing happening. She would have to be on reception all day. Yeah. But there, it's like she knows she can go to sleep because she also knows that if it all goes tits up, well, it always goes tits up in this hotel. <laughs> I- I'll be fine. So yeah, I think, yeah. But I because think he needs is, me. Like, yeah, that's, that's the thing. She knows that's he it. needs her. I mean, there's one episode yeah. where she's she, she's quitting, I think, and he bribes her to stay. Yes. And he's like, no, co- no, I'll give you this. I'll give you this. And, um, and that's it. She knows. She knows full well that yeah. really the hotel wouldn't run properly without her even no, though she it. is lazy, um, because Basil is so consumed half the time with all these crazy things and, and that kind of thing. And, yep. and Sybil probably doesn't do as much. She's off at the hairdressers or she's visiting Audrey yeah, or she whatever. she help out enough. No, she's not there all the time. And then, like you say, she's in the bar flirting with men and getting drunk herself at night. So who's doing all the work? Manuel is just doing whatever Manuel does. So yeah, it's interesting, you know, in that they've got they haven't got a very big staff because it's not a very big hotel anyway. There's only like there's only like the four of them plus maybe the chef um, Terry occasionally, um, and that's it really. You know, there's never any other staff, so like she can yeah, you're right. She is. That's a great way of looking at Polly. She is lazy, but yeah, I, think I think also she's quite she's quite mercenary, and I think she takes absolutely. what opportunity yeah. she can get, you know, to to feather her own nest at points as well well i i mean it's like i i imagine i've always imagined that she is not basically she's not attached to the place like like manuel you know he sees it as his home and he kind of loves mr Mm. faulty and you know and and you know if they are still running now i'm sure manuel still works there with his (laughs) wife and kids and grandkids um but i mean the you know we've sort of touched on the the timeline is very vague and there are only 12 episodes and for all we know the entirety of 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 faulty towers takes place across one season yeah 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 polly may only have worked in that hotel for a four-month period Mm. you know i don't feel Mm. like she is attached to the place no. And when it hit, when you know, when it is appropriate for her, when she gets something better or when, you know, this could even be, you know, she's moved over to the UK to earn a bit of cash before she starts art college. It's like, so I think Polly is, po- Polly is probably the most manipulative of the characters. She's really, you know, she's, she's dropped into this situation, which on the surface, you kind of think, poor Polly, she's so sensible and, and normal and she you know she's stuck with these people it's like no 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 polly's landing on her feet she she came in for her interview and she thought 
I'm well in here. It's like if I can get into this place, uh, they won't pay me as much, but I can do what I like and then I can bugger off. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, not not to sort of like dwell on it too much, but what you're saying, it's like I've always thought it was interesting that that Connie Booth didn't want to play Sybil. Um mm. or that Sybil and Basil didn't have the same relationship as as Sybil uh, so sorry, as uh, Polly and Basil. But I think you're right. It's like there's a I, I guess it's there's a natural chemistry that that Cleese and Booth have just between the two of them anyway. Mm. Um, that it is that kind of, um, you know, maybe young Basil and Sybil were a bit more like Basil and Polly are in the way yeah, they interacted. Could have been. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think mm. so. And I, I it, there's there's a naturalism to the way Basil and Polly talk that isn't yes. there with the other characters. Oh, absolutely very interesting and that it's it's i'm not saying that they're porting over their personalities into these characters because they're not i don't think but there is there is a sense that basil can talk to polly in an open and honest way in the way he can't do with anybody else even sybil and that, i was just gonna say yeah you know polly, and, and polly she, is the and, only person he's honest with yeah 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 because she's almost like the friend who he knows he can count on in that sense so yes. he's invested more in her than the other way around so it's it's very yeah it's a very interesting relationship that they have and it, it's one of the more it's one of the lower key aspects but it, it's very crucial to Forty Towers you know in that sense they're just all really really interesting creations and I think we've covered them in some real some real depth there and we've gone into some really cool areas with this I suppose let's finish then by talking about what, what our choice episodes are so I thought maybe what if we pick like three each that we I mean it doesn't matter if they overlap but three each that yeah. we think you know what would what would be the three that you would point to any new person who's not seen 40 towers to go and watch oh it's tough um, this is really really tough this one someone someone who has never watched okay I'm gonna cheat slightly um okay. because if if I were if I'm gonna talk about my app you know my favorite that I would recommend people to watch my number one favorite is actually the hotel inspectors. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love the hotel inspectors. Yeah. I would also say communication problems. <laughs> and then I would probably in terms of like, if I was trying to encourage somebody to get a taste of what it was like, um, I would probably put the Germans on there, but then I would actually probably take communication problems out and say, watch the first episode first. So watch, watch, um, touch a class, watch the the first episode first. But for me personally, yeah, I mean, they're all really, really good. And I think that I would say, yeah, um, you know, hotel inspectors is my number one communication problems, my uh, number two. And then a number three slot is actually probably just interchangeable depending on my mood. Yeah. Depending on what, what I'm, what, you know, what I, what I am in the mood for, what kind of like, because obviously different episodes almost sort of tackle different different elements. Um, mm. Mm. But the Germans, the Germans is fascinating. It's so dense, the Germans. Yeah. Like yeah. so much happens in it. So much is set up. It's like a proper kind of like, you know, five act play. And you've got some, you've got some razor sharp, like the whole stuff with the bell, the fire bell is just amazing. <laughs> oh, it, that's just, I mean, this is the thing. It's like, <laughs> Like people think of that episode and they think, obviously they think of 
the the Hitler walk and don't mention the war. But that's literally like you know three minutes at the end yeah. of the episode. Yeah, there's but loads the fire, more. The fire bell is super. The fire bell is that is another brilliant example of Basil should not work in a hotel because <laughs> he, you know, it, it hits a, it gets to the point where he's he's genuinely trying to be reasonable and saying, can everyone please, you know, it went off by mistake. Can you all please go back to what you were doing and we're going to have the uh, we're going to do the test in five minutes and they all just stand in the lobby. Yeah, and it's like, and he's like, "Well, come on, if you go through here, if you go there in the kitchen, and they're like, well, well, we'll just wait here." And as much as Basil has kind of like messed up, and he's getting frustrated, it's like those people are being assholes. <laughs> it's like they're being so unhelpful and uncooperative, and he yeah. hasn't he hasn't really impositioned them that much, you no. know, really. But yeah, that's what I mean. It's like the you know you've got the Germans, you've got like that whole sequence is like. You know, there's frankly that that whole section, the firebell, I think, mm. is funnier than it's, it's than the so Hitler good. walk and yeah, and all yeah. that. You know, that, those are some really good choices. I'm I'm going to go for some slightly different ones, mm-hmm. but along similar lines in terms of mapping different aspects of the show, I would go for my my favourite is the psychiatrist. I think of all of them. Oh yeah, which, which is, is fantastic. Much as that, like you say, like like you, I could interchange favorites many ways i feel mm-hmm. like a psychiatrist again is rich in so many things yeah and it has some incredible moments of farce and escalating farce and psychologically that one is really dense i think yes. for for farcical silliness i might say the kipper and the corpse because oh yeah. oh that's i guess it's yeah that's a bit more old school isn't it in it, terms of like farce yeah yeah it's a bit broader they they just have to hide a dead body yeah <laughs> 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 Mr. Lehman dead. Well, I, I thought I, yeah. I thought it wasn't saying much. Um, <laughs> and then I think I think I would go for, in terms of building like tension and complication, I might go for the anniversary, which is where he has yeah. to pretend Sybil is in the hotel when they've had a big row and she's left, and and Polly has to dress up as her in a dark room and pretend to be yeah, Sybil. It's brilliant. While, all of their friends come round and the. The, the logistics he has to do to try and keep them from the truth is so good and so, you know, complicated and exhausting. And it, it this, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily that some of these episodes have the, the razor sharp, because you could find episodes with probably funnier gags or moments necessarily. Mm, but yeah, I think there, you could, you could honestly with this show, you don't really necessarily have to watch them in order because there's no real continuity. No, not really. No. You could what we could put on any of these twelve, and I think you would you would get a sense in some way of what Forty Towers is, and it would make you laugh. And I think that is astonishing, really, in terms of. There's not many shows where you could say that you could definitively point out all twelve are similar but different and innovative enough to stand on their own as great pieces of comedy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like I I often think that it's if it doesn't sound like a weird benchmark to how you know sort of the testament of a sitcom is could you could you mount it as a stage production Mm. um in you know in its own right and i think i think with faulty towers you could i think you could take any one of those scripts and perform it on stage without tweaking it and you can just like drop in and out and it's not like it's not like they sort of tediously remind you who the characters are but the characters are so well defined that the the show basically establishes itself each episode. Yeah, it does. It sort of reformats and 
begins again in a way. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. It's it's fascinating that you could you could not many shows do that either. And I think yeah, it's you yeah, it's just 12 really great episodes that all have different facets to them. Um so if anyone is listening to this <laughs> who hasn't watched it, which I'd be surprised. <laughs> but uh you know, you're in for a treat. And if you have listened to it, I suspect you might fancy a rewatch, but just go and do it. They're all on Netflix in the UK at least right now. And they're just, it's just gold. It will never, ever, I don't think Fault Towers will ever, ever let, get less funny. I think it will just always remain absolute quality of the highest order, really. Um, Absolutely. We've peaked, Robert, really, haven't we? We've peaked at the beginning. No, we don't. Uh, we just don't need any more. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, ne- ne- next time we can talk about the Faulty Towers remakes. There we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh God, what was yeah. it? The, the most there was one with um, John Larroquette in uh, in America called Pain, which I remember. Yes, yes, Royal um, Pain. Royal Pain. Yeah, which, ca- yeah. Which wasn't very good. Yeah. Although I did, I did I think- read that John Cleese was going to appear in that as a rival hotelier. Apparently, if it had carried on, but really, yeah, no. Yeah. No. Never happened in the end. No, horrendous. Yeah. All the well actually, you know, sorry, not to not to to launch back on again, but just I think it is worth talking about the legacy. This this bizarre culture of the, the Faulty Towers dinner experience. Oh yeah. That yeah. exists. And I think it's a weird test of, it's very it's very British. This idea that like <laughs> that like, you know, let's let's be fair, predominantly middle-aged people who who kind of like, you know, grew up with the show in its heyday um that they actually want to pay money to go and have dinner <laughs> and experience basil faulty it's not just it's not it's like weird, watching a play it's like they want basil faulty to come running through the tables and kick things over and steal their bread i think it's 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 fascinating that we yeah. we want to we want to experience his his you know nihilistic neurosis it's crazy but yeah, that's a, it, i think that's an amazing legacy it is. And there aren't many. I think there's a similar one with Only Fools and Horses that might exist as well somewhere. And I suppose it's of, of a similar sort of lineage to the secret cinema experiences that they do in London. Absolutely. You know, like. Yeah. And I've I've done a Star Wars one of them, which was which was great fun. And they are they're a lot. They're very enjoyable. But this is different in that in that one, you're more in a new, in an environment and you're watching bits of theatre happen around you as such and performances yes. around you. And then you watch a movie, whereas in this you are part of it. You know, you are yeah. the guests, you know, you're having to, you're interacting potentially with Basil, quote unquote. So yeah, it's a different, different kind of experience. I mean, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I, I would. I, would I, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I, to be honest, I'd probably find it a bit cringe to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh but is, no. But it is this thing. It's like, I mean, if, think about it. If somebody said to you tomorrow, it's like, well, actually, you know, it is a real hotel and there's a real guy there. And it's like a night there's only 40 quid. Should we go and check it out? How tempted would you be <laughs> if that guy was still running his hotel? If he was still around today, it's like, yeah. you know, to go and it's stay true. in Basil's hotel. It's like, it's true. You might, you might, well, I might say that. Yeah. I probably would have, I probably would have done it as ever more because you know, it'd really. be really disappointing. You'd probably walk in, you'd just be very polite. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, my, my wife will look after you. It's like, oh, bloody hell. Abuse me, damn it. Come <laughs> That's on. what I've come here for. Come uh, <laughs> on, lunch at me. Come on. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. If, um, if anyone has done the, those experiences, you know, the 40 Towers dinner experiences, let us know because, uh, yeah, that will be uh, quite, quite fascinating uh, <laughs> to find out about. 
but uh, yeah, this has been this has been really fascinating uh, to talk about, and uh, I think next time we're gonna. Uh, and I think we talked about this in the previous episode. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about the office, the the British office, and uh, which which very much is another legacy from Forty Towers. So it'll be interesting to sort of compare and contrast and get into how what that says about comedy and culture and characters in that space. A good twenty plus years later. Yeah, Towers, that kind of evolution of these these kind of characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to that, get into. It will. It really will. So uh, yeah, this has been a great. First day, I've really enjoyed this, Robert. It's been really good. I think we're on to a winner here. I think this is going to no, be... No, thank you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. This, is, this has been a good... good. I could keep talking about 40 Towers for another three hours. It's like, yep. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, don't tempt us, guys. <laughs> we'll just keep going. Um, so, but until we do come back, um, is there anywhere on, online where people can find you if they want to check out a bit more of what you do? Oh, well, at the moment, I, I guess I'm only Twitter at the moment. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at 4ducks, uh, F-O-R-D-U-C-K-S. And uh, whatever, I, whatever I might be up to, I tend to uh, post it out on there so you can find further things. Uh, but I also have a 10-month-old baby, so that's what I spend Aww. a lot of my time doing at the moment. So. <laughs> it's fair enough it's a good excuse definitely you can check me out folks on twitter as well at aj black writer and you'll find links to my my personal website uh the truth is in here.co.uk and also uh we made this podcast network which as i've uh mentioned is have i mentioned it this episode i'm not sure i'll mention it anyway and links to the we made this podcast network which we're a part of and uh yeah you can find that at we made this network.com uh, where you can find all the other shows that we're doing. So thanks for joining us for this first proper episode of You Have Been Watching. And remember, as I say, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network and Forty Towers is not all we're discussing. So we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed on the network in a moment. Uh, but until next time, you have been listening to Tony Black. And Robert Turnbull. We're off with a garden known to Canada. See you next time. <laughs> Elsewhere on We Made This. Frame to frame. I do find that on Please Mr. Kennedy, it always tickles me when Adam Driver pops up. Yeah. I think that the the ridiculous insertions that he has in the song is what makes it. Outer space. (laughs) Outer space. (laughs) It's just absurd. I just love it. It's very kitsch. And then you've got that. Yeah, I I just love the... (laughs) Oh no! <laughs> just like, he just throws in things like that. Uh oh! It's just great. Um, this is the first film I saw Adam Driver in, and he's only in it for about five minutes, and he almost steals the entire movie. That's how great, that's what a great actor he is. Although obviously one must credit the Coen Brothers with the brilliant attention to detail and the music and the writing and the direction, as you'd expect. Yeah. Cerebral jukebox. My friend had a Nimrod t-shirt. A lot of, well, quite a few people I knew had Nimrod t-shirts. Yeah, um, yeah. The kind of the famous one. I think I must have seen that, that album cover every day. Yeah. <laughs> for two years. To, to me, um, I think Nimrod could be the perfect rock album. Um, I don't think there's a better all-round rock album than, than Nimrod. American Idiot is, is, is exceptional, but there's something about Nimrod that has, it ticks so many boxes and has so much diversity on it. I think it could be the best album ever made. Pretty Fly, a 90s nostalgia podcast. People like me have benefited from that for generations. 
Now that that's being challenged, yeah, centuries, 100%. You've got people that are understanding, and, and I'm not ashamed of who I am or where I'm from, uh, but that, you know, doesn't mean that I can't sit back and say, hey, other people catching up ain't a bad thing. Absolutely. I just want to remind the listeners, this is a Rugrats podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This has got deep and serious uh, at the moment. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network.